Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Cass reports five civilians killed, 39 wounded in attacks on DPR over the past day. The day before, Donetsk was shelled with rocket and cannon artillery and with 155 millimeter artillery guns. What does this signal for Ukraine? Well, for insight, we turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Shloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour. So five civilians were killed and another 39 people sustained wounds in shelling attacks by Ukrainian forces in the Donetsk People's Republic over the past day. The DPR's mission to the Joint Ceasefire Control and Coordination Center said this earlier today. What's going on, Mark, and why is this of note? Okay, so um, first of all, Donetsk being bombed by the Kiev regime is nothing new. It's what's been happening for the last eight years. In fact, it's one of the primary reasons why, with the uh, Kiev regime's failure to uh, even consider implementing the Minsk Accords, that Russia uh, has intervened in the Ukrainian civil conflict. Um, But it is notable that since the um, crisis uh, since the, the Russian intervention began at the end of February, on at least eight times, uh, the Kiev regime has directly targeted Donetsk city center. And there are no military targets there. It is purely uh, a, a strike against civilian targets. And having bombed Donetsk for the last eight years, you can be sure that the Kiev regime's military forces know where everything is in Donetsk and what they're hitting. It is not a mistake. In this latest occasion, they shelled um, uh, a maternity hospital, a direct hit on a maternity hospital at with no military, no Azov inside, um, uh, and uh, a market. Uh, And this latest round resulted in five deaths. Um, This is particularly noticeable for the scale of the attack. They they used some uh, 300 uh, artillery and rocket rounds, uh, and that uh, a portion of those, about a third of them, were coming from 155 millimeter NATO standard uh, uh, towed, uh, self, uh, towed artillery gun, uh, which means that the weapons that NATO gave the Kiev regime were directly used to hit what can only have been a and intended to be a civilian target, uh, which included one 11-year-old boy. So, I mean, this is what the NATO states uh, uh, taxpayers are paying for, uh, for civilians to continue to be killed in 
Donetsk. Um, and it's rather interesting uh, on another level because just at the end of last week, we heard from uh, Kiev regime officials that they are nearly out of ammunition as well as uh, you know the weapons to fire them, that they have very few uh, artillery rounds left. And so with what they have left, rather than, say, engaging with Russian or even East Ukrainian Donbass military forces, what they choose to do with them instead is use what they have left to hit the civilian center of Donetsk. That, of course, would, would be the very definition of an act of political terrorism. And just hours after these strikes, uh, Zelensky gave out a message promising or threatening, because that's what it seemed to be in light of this, that those Ukrainian cities that are not flying the Kiev regime's flag uh, he warns them, tell your friends we are coming now. And he promises them to you know, raise the flag over every uh, city in Donbass and Crimea, which sounds a little ludicrous considering the military situation uh, on the ground in East Ukraine. Uh, but uh, it, it is you know, the type of inflammatory rhetoric coming out of Kiev because quite clearly the people of Crimea and, and the Donbass uh, do not want <laughs> that regime's flag raised over their cities uh, anymore. Let me ask you this. I have read, true or not, I don't know, that um, early in World War II when the Brits were um, getting their – basically their military infrastructure was getting hit hard by the Germans, that they attacked German civilian targets to goad the Germans into responding by attacking civilian targets, which though they'd lose civilians – it would help to preserve their military infrastructure. Do you think it's possible that part of this was was to provoke some kind of a response? Uh, you know, ideally, they probably want the, the Russians to attack some kind of a civilian infrastructure in return. And then they could say, oh, my God, we told you the Russians were evil. But at any rate, do, what do you think about that? And what do you think the actual response, if any, will be? Or will the Russians just continue going about doing what they're doing? Mark. Okay, I mean, since the conflict began, I mean, even the serious Western military analysts, not the pundits, have acknowledged that Russia has done uh, what it can, what is more than reasonable to avoid civilian targets, particularly when the Kiev regime forces are occupying schools and hospitals uh, and residential buildings and so on as firing points. So I don't think there was any expectation that whatever happened that Russia would respond. But the, the Russian government has repeatedly said that they will start striking decision-making centers in uh, of the Kiev regime uh, if the attacks on civilians continue. Um, and that is that would be the U.S. military definition of command and control. Remember when the U.S. was trying to bomb Saddam Hussein or trying to bomb Gaddafi and had no repercussions about striking government centers, political centers, uh, you know, going after the leaders of the country. And Russia has refrained from doing that. But this may be an attempt to make them 
to provoke them into doing what they have repeatedly promised and for whatever reason, I don't really understand it myself, refrained from attacking such political decision-making centers. RT reports that Turkey reveals position on NATO summit expan- NATO, NATO expansion ahead of summit. Erdogan will tell fellow NATO leaders that he won't compromise on Sweden and Finland's membership applications. Ankara maintains its opposition to Sweden and Finland joining NATO, uh, a position he is expected to reiterate in the upcoming summit in Spain. Uh, your thoughts on this? And it seems now that Erdogan is taking a harder line with his statement. And what I mean by that is, as I recall, and Garland, please correct me if I'm wrong, in earlier statements, he always seemed to leave himself an out. I'm not going to allow this to happen unless my conditions are met. Now he seems to be saying, I'm not going to compromise and this is not going, I'm not going to allow this to happen. Your thoughts, Mark Sloboda? This is a, a, a classic example of Erdogan being Erdogan and using a situation where he sees uh, political leverage to get what he wants from NATO. Um, and he has long been upset that uh, NATO members, particularly the U.S., are supporting the YPG, which he connects with the PKK, uh, the, the, the Syrian YPG, uh, as, as the U.S. military has rebranded as the Syrian Democratic Forces as their proxies for their occupation, military occupation of East Ukraine. Um, Erdogan has long been upset about that, and European support, particularly from the Scandinavian states, um, for uh, bringing in what are essentially political refugees from um, uh, Turkey, uh, Kurds, uh, and a large, uh, evidently such a number of them that Sweden actually has several MPs uh, in their parliament, uh, some parliamentary members uh, who who are Kurds, uh, obviously elected by uh, Kurdish immigrants. Uh, so he is using this opportunity to lash out on this. I think that the unwillingness that has been signaled by NATO countries to compromise and give Erdogan what he really wants thus far, which is more weapons, more money, um, better economic terms, uh, has, has essentially him escalating his rhetoric because now the price has gone up. <laughs> uh, not that he won't compromise, but that the price – of compromise has gone up uh, in in his mind because uh, they haven't given the proper signals up till now. And I have little doubt because NATO really wants politically as a statement to Russia to bring Finland and Sweden in now, particularly while the public mood is still uh, has had this dramatic shift, which could go away at any time uh, to join. Uh, so I have no doubt that there will be many behind closed doors meetings and Erdogan uh, will walk out of them suddenly changing his mind and announcing his compromise, but getting considerably more for it than he would have before because Erdogan. <laughs> I do wonder, though, again, because Erdogan, here's a guy who looks at the outcome and who he thinks will be the winner. 
and that he's leveraging his he- his bets for the future, that it may not just be about what he wants now. He may be looking at the future. Plus, he has a heavy Muslim population. He's got the pressure from the Middle East. The Muslim world says uh, overwhelmingly supporting Russia. So I don't know. I got mixed emotions here. But the president of Mexico, AMLO, he said some, I mean, here he is right next to the U.S. And he's saying that basically condemning the NATO's policy, saying basically you're saying I'll supply the weapons and you supply the dead. It is immoral. How easy is it to say here, I'll send you this much money for weapons. Couldn't the war in Ukraine have been avoided? Of course it could. I think it's very embarrassing for the U.S. Although uh, AMLO has really been siding strongly with the anti-imperialist. I really like that guy. Uh, your thoughts on uh, on on uh, the president of Mexico letting uh, letting the neocons have it, giving them what for, yeah. why not, and don't do it again. Of, of course, everything that the president of Mexico said is completely true. Um, but I, I actually worry for him making these statements um, because he has. We, we we know that there's a long history of the United States not liking leftist leaders in. Uh, Latin America and doing everything uh, hook, crook, regime change, you know, um, uh, uh, state armed and funded right wing death squads is necessary to bring them down. Uh, Emlo has pretty much snuck under the radar this far by not taking strong foreign policy positions against the United States. But the last month has seen him lash out at the U.S. over their um, BS um, uh, uh, Summit of the Americas, which Cuba and Nicaragua and Venezuela were left out of, while right-wing governments that, that don't even approximate a democracy were allowed in. Uh, he he did not show up, and, and he verbally lashed out at that. And now he's doing a bucking against the U.S. on Ukraine at a very tense geopolitical moment where the U.S. is demanding absolute loyalty and threatening secondary sanctions against countries all over the world. I I don't know if this was the wisest moment for him to speak up on a principled issue like this, um, because I would like to see him continue (laughs) in in office in Mexico and doing this right on the U.S.'s backyard is, you know, I mean, the only thing he could possibly do worse is to invite Russian or Chinese military forces in, uh, you know, to help defend the countries, because we all know the U.S., while it says other countries have that the, the right, you know, they would not apply the same thing to their own hemisphere. What's interesting is that in March, a half dozen legislators from AMLO's Morena Party created a congressional Mexico-Russia friendship committee. So there seems to be growing support in Mexico for, for this position. We got about 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, there's no question there is no country in in Latin America that has joined the U.S. sanctions against Russia. And there is broad sympathy, particularly in leftist South American countries, because they well know the tricks that the U.S. used to overthrow the government in Ukraine in 2014 and the right wing regime that has resulted since, since they have all seen it many times before. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. MSN reports Ukraine fears defeat in East without surge in military aid. Wow. DefenseOne.com writes, Ukraine will survive and the U.S. is preparing to arm it for years, says Pentagon's Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks. How concerned should we be as American taxpayers and as human beings? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He is the founder of Global Perspective Consulting, headquartered in Dallas, Texas, Dr. David Walalu. As always, welcome back. Pleasure to be with you, guys. So MSN writes... The war in Ukraine has turned into a grinding artillery contest where Russia is steadily gaining ground thanks to its overwhelming advantage in firepower. As the U.S. and allies gather Wednesday to discuss fresh military aid to Kiev, Ukraine's fate will largely depend on how fast and in what quantities these heavy weapons arrive. Dr. Walalu, is this analysis a setup Is it a rationale preparing Americans for another Afghanistan defense slog that turns into a money pit? Or are they fattening frogs for snakes? (laughs) This is exactly what PSYOPs are all about. You have to psych the population for what lies ahead for this prolonged war, because this is not going to be over next month or two months. Yes. That's exactly, you, you, you hit the nail on the head, uh, uh, Walmart, because this is exactly how was the argument to the first two, to actually the first year uh, when we went to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. That's how they psyched the population. So we're moving into that direction. The question that, well, not a question, there are one thing that your listeners need to know, because it doesn't get reported, so again, doesn't get reported in the West, so we, they have no idea. Russian troops, as of today, control about 80%, okay? I say this, 80% of the contested eastern Ukraine city of Severodonetsk. You know, mm-hmm. all of this has to do with the east. So when Ukraine is asking for weapons and how urgent the weapons, okay, what happened to the weapons that have been sent before? They all get destroyed. Mm-hmm. The Russians have the capability to destroy this. So you can just see the vicious cycle that is going to be, as, the, as we said at the beginning, you fight the war in Ukraine to the last Ukrainian. This is basically what it's going to be. Now, there is one side that we, as Americans, have the right to ask the question. And the question is, where is this over $50 billion is spent on? Don't we have the right to know what our taxpayers' money is spent on? Is this now the call for, and time has come to have some sort of an inspector uh, general? That is the same setup we had for the cigar, remember, the one for the inspector general for Afghanistan? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to understand, because American people have the right to know where their tax, tax money is spent on, when we have problems right here at home, economic ones. As I always say, and I will keep hammering this point, an average family in America now is deciding whether to buy dinner for the kids or to fill 
the, the, the car with gas so they can get to work. Mm-hmm. That's the key question that we need to answer. And the government doesn't seem to uh, sort of the officials and, and, and just whether it's a, a lack of uh, really understanding or they live in a parallel world. Uh, how much money can we be giving to this Ukraine? So and what happened to the over 50 billion dollars? Nothing is accounted for. So we do have the right to know where this is headed. So Ukraine is going to be, of course, calling for more weapons. But, and the West is going to be saying, giving the uh, lip service, shall we say, sure, we will keep supporting Ukraine, whatever, which gives an idea we are talking about a prolonged war here. I was, um, Dr. Wallalu, I was watching, uh, I've seen this guy online, a General Twitty, um, from one of the mm-hmm. events that they were having, and he basically was honest. He said, you know, there's no, so, so, there's, you know, no scenario where um, Ukraine wins this or pushes uh, Russia out of anything. Um, I've seen uh, General Douglas McGregor. Recently, there was a, a general, a very high-ranking general in the UK, basically saying the same thing. These people are realists saying, look, you know, from the war speaking, this thing's over. And, um, you know, the Ukrainians are just being used like cannon fodder. It seems to me that when they say things like, if you look in this article, it says the Ukrainians say, we need a thousand howitzers, 300 multiple launch rocket systems, 500 tanks. Well, they know they're not getting that. Is it kind of also a setup for now that it's apparent that the Russian now that they will have to they know soon they'll have to admit that Ukraine's going to lose and the Russians are going to win. They're kind of setting people up to say, well, sure, they lost. But if we gave them more stuff or if that would have happened or if this would have happened, they would have won. So they can kind of set up a soft landing to say to the people in the West, OK, the Russians kind of won. And I guess we got to come up with a deal now. Yeah, because they will try that tactic to make sure. This is why NATO is saying now, you're hitting in the holes of NATO now, the word of negotiations with the Russians, you know, quietly has been said, because they want to save face. They realize what a blunder and mistake they made in the first place, because if it weren't for NATO's expansion, we won't be in this fiasco. We won't have to send our over $50 billion from our taxpayers' money to some, uh, we don't even know if the money makes it over there to begin with, you know. This is reminding me of uh, when I was doing my research for my second or third book, I don't remember exactly, uh, and, and, and one of them has to do with the money we were sending to Egypt at that time. And you know what I found out? Most of the money we were sending were, set, were, were in a bank account in Switzerland belonged to uh, Hosni Mubarak. That's U.S. tax money. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. So the, now when the generals are saying what they're saying, yeah, from a military perspective, it's over. And we all know this. You know, we were kidding ourselves by giving this flower speeches about Ukraine is going to withstand it to the Russians. And come on. It's reality. And the problem we have now for us here in the U.S., we don't like when people speak the truth. It's almost like truth becomes synonymous with enmity. You know, since when? And, and, and you got a media that is, you know, sort of altering the reality, you know, flipping uh, the minds of the American people for convincing them for, no, 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 it can work this way if we keep sending money, if we keep sending weapons. No, it won't. It won't. And we saw this with Iraq and we saw with Afghanistan. Haven't we learned anything? And it pains me to say this as an American because 
I walk outside and I talk to people and I see. It really pains me to see this, where the country is headed, our country. DefenseOne.com writes, facing the challenge of supporting Ukraine, modernizing the U.S. military to deter China, and doing so in the midst of rising inflation and a possible recession, the Pentagon's number two civilian leader, uh, that being uh, Kathleen Hicks, laid out how the Defense Department is attempting to tackle multiple unprecedented challenges at once. Well, multiple press unprecedented challenges, most of which seem to be at the making of the United States. So it, this really, I, I, I say this here all the time, this really seems to be to me, don't start nothing, won't be nothing. But the United States seems to be the one creating these scenarios so that the Department of Defense can claim we need more money. Yeah, well, you're absolutely correct, uh, Wilmer. I mean, look no further than the statement by uh, Defense Secretary Lord Austin in, uh, in, in Singapore about two days ago when he was meeting with the Chinese defense minister. Uh, and, and the argument is, you know, we've got to push for more tensions with China, more of selling of weapons to Taiwan. Yeah, you want to sell weapons, sell weapons. But at the same time, you can be creating the environment where any, any minor miscalculation is going to go out of control. It won't be controlled. Nobody will be able to stop it. And this is where the problem with politicians and uh, some in defense industry, which we all know, in the Pentagon, they're going to have to sort of uh, toe the line with the industry and so forth. We understand the, the, the dynamics. But at the same time, when enough is enough. And when we speak the truth, you become the enemy. Since when? So basically, the statement of Higgs, what it suggests is we are looking at a prolonged war in Ukraine. And Russia is not going to let it happen. They saw what took place in Afghanistan. They, are, they saw what took place for them when they went to Afghanistan. They are not going to let it happen. And you will think once again, and I did say this a couple of times, we will learn from what happened to Georgia or Ukraine will learn from what happened to its neighbor, Georgia, at the time. You know, they just ridiculous and sort of uh, lack pragmatism from any way or any corner you look at it to how NATO now is arguing its statements about, you know, we're going to have to support, provide more funding, provide weapons. You know, it's not going to cut it. The war is lost already. So time for them to accept the reality and sit down and negotiate a solution, a permanent one, that is. Uh, I also think that the most pressing need with NATO, you know, I saw an article that said the Polish, the Poland has their people, they've given them permission to gather firewood because they don't have uh, uh, gas and coal and stuff. Now there's another article, Latvians, the same thing. And you know, they're talking about arming the, uh, you know, the Ukrainians. They're talking about the long term as far as the war. But what do you think about the issue of the immediacy of economic pain being more of an impetus for the um, resolution than even what's going on on the battlefield? And that will be the crucial point, uh, Donald. That will be the key. What the Europeans, if there is, and it will be, a social unrest, that will be because of the economic aspect. 
because that's what people care the most about. Like for us here in the U.S., you know, I mean, when you look at now, uh, for example, the inflation in uh, the Czech Republic, it's about 16 percent. When you look at the inflation in Romania, it's about 14 percent. Germany, France on their way up. Spain is on way up. Uh, UK, even though it's not an EU member, but it's going the, the wrong direction as well. You can just see the calls within Europe now. This is going in a direction that, wait, 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 wait. We didn't vote for you to lead us into this path. And they're going to have to. Economics is always, and, and you know more than anyone, uh, economics is at least what helps people make a decision when it comes down to voting. It's what's going to be for us domestically comes midterm. It's because Americans cannot be living with this. They've had enough. So as Garland and I have been saying on the show, the fact that most of these uh, European governments are parliamentary systems where a change in government can come at the call on any particular day for a vote of no confidence, the United States with our two-party system and every four-year cycle, the parties here can with have a have a have a longer leash because elections are not nearly as frequent or as feared as they are in Europe. Exactly, but also because we don't have a referendum here in our system. Mm -hmm. Have we ever had any referendum? No, we don't, because the system doesn't allow it. And that's where the fear of the political parties, uh, you know, Americans will have to wake up and see the reality for what it is. But the bottom line, we can't be living like this forever because Americans are feeling the pain as we speak. And this will have to stop. Dr. David Walalu, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. No relief at the pump. Gas prices could hit an average of $6 per gallon. The national average price for gas hit an all-time high of $5 per gallon. This is according to AAA. The cost of a barrel of oil is over $120, nearly double last August's price. Oil demand still remains high as the summer season ramps up, outpacing supply. While President Biden tells us that this is Putin's price hike, are there other factors or dynamics at play here? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tawheed. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So the national average surged 15 cents higher from a week ago, 58 cents higher from a month ago, and a dollar and 94 cents higher from a year ago. The national average yesterday hit five dollars and one cent per gallon. And again, folks, that's the national average. So I know those of you listening in Los Angeles are saying we wish we had five dollars a gallon uh, and because theirs has been over five dollars for a very long time. Dr. Tahit, what's going on, man? 
Well, uh, we we are first of all we're, we're going into the summer, and we are certainly in a, a, a seasonal uh, increase in gas prices because uh, well, people are traveling on vacation. It usually is the case that when gas prices go up, uh, people don't travel as much. But uh, but it, it appears that 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 folks are wanting to get out. I guess you know pandemic lockdown is causing people to to just bite the bullet and pay more for gas uh, to go on vacation. But people are going on vacation. That's that's one thing. Increased demand. But then there's also a a current shortfall of about 12 percent from last year. Uh, in terms of the supply. Now, that supply uh, should be no surprise. We have an embargo on Russian oil, although it is the case, I guess, in another story that some Russian oil is still getting into the U.S., but that's another story. But there certainly is a decrease in the supply of oil from Russia, which is adding to the supply, uh, supply shortage. And in addition, the U.S. is sending more oil. Uh, the U.S. is, a, is an oil exporter, is sending more oil to, to, to Europe to try to offset uh, their shortfall in oil because of their embargo on Russian oil. Uh, that, that won't be successful. There's not enough oil. But, but any time the U.S. is going to decrease its supply by selling it elsewhere, then prices of, gas, of, of oil and, and therefore prices of gasoline are going to go up. Uh, European prices have, have are, are um, over eight dollars per gallon, but European uh, prices in, in the in, gal- in the dollar equivalent have always been higher. In in Europe, they have higher gas taxes to to limit uh, try to limit um, um, use of gasoline, uh, but gas prices in Europe are are, are, are higher. Uh, interestingly enough, I, I, I was, was shocked that the, the gas price in Venezuela is eight cents per gallon. Now, uh, you know, Venezuela is a, is a, is a gas-producing country, but, but they also have an embargo, um, a sanction, so that they're not able to sell their oil uh, uh, just as freely. And so it's eight cents per gallon in Venezuela. Keep, keep that in mind. Heaven forbid if it were to spike to 10 cents a gallon. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It, it might be cheaper for me to drive to Venezuela I was and say, fill up fill my, my car and, drive and then drive back. You could, you could fill up. You could fill up in Venezuela. Take a take a large tanker and come back, and probably do well. Um, I'm looking right now at global petrol prices in Russia. Three dollars. It looks three dollars and forty one cent. I think there's something else that, that we we need to keep track of though. Uh, at a dollar twenty uh, per barrel, uh, forty two gallons per barrel. That's about two dollars and ninety cents per gallon in terms of the cost of oil to refineries. Uh, the fact that we have such a such a large gap between the cost and the eventual price may may mean there's some price gouging going on as well. I'm thinking that's a possibility. Now, let me add this. <laughs> Interpret that into politics. There's a civics poll right now, um, at June 13, and they've got this particular poll. Now, there's ones all over the place, but this particular poll has uh, President Biden at 33 percent. And, of course, there's going to be various polls and his disapproval at 56 percent. The numbers are really, really ugly. When you go down to the subgroups and all, it, you, just see, you just see basically a bloodbath in the midterms. Um, your thoughts on the direction you see the economy going on, going in 
um, between now and the midterms, how things are going, the direction as far as, you know, uh, whether we'll be in a recession, as far as gas prices, those things, and how do you think it'll affect politics? Well, I think gas prices are going to continue to go up, energy prices in general. And because energy prices affect manufacturing prices, uh, then the price of other things are going to go up, uh, food and other other manufactured goods. Uh, And so we're going to see prices, we're going to see inflation. And in terms of, of the politics of it, it's it's not a, a washing for for President Biden to blame this on 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 uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, people aren't buying that. Uh, they're understanding that uh, it's it's the uh, the sanctions uh, imposed by by uh, the Biden administration on Russia that's causing these worldwide spikes in in energy costs. Uh, but we also have some other things, of course, that are driving inflation. We have uh, climate change, which is causing uh, a shortfall in production of food, particularly in the Midwest. Uh, we have uh, the uh, supply chain crisis, which uh, is going to continue. And, uh, you know, much of the, uh, of the imported goods uh, from China, China is the U.S. largest trading partner, uh, those goods are on a slowdown because uh, China is is dealing seriously with its COVID situation and shutting down production. Uh, they've been doing that for a while, uh, but the supply chain crisis it was unexpected, but it certainly is causing a huge uh, increase in in the prices of goods. And uh, then, we, of course, we we have the pandemic, which is uh, apparently surging again. Uh, which is going to shut down some production as well. So uh, things are not looking good for the economy. And uh, somebody said it's the economy stupid. Uh, James James Carville. James Carville. I think he was right, and it's still it's still the case. So you're looking at a 33 percent approval rating, and and even though this is one survey, that is I from all that I've looked at a fairly accurate representation. You're looking at 50 cents. 56% disapproval rating. So there are a number of things that if Joe Biden decided to do, he, uh-huh. he could do. And there are a number of things that if he decided to advocate for, he could advocate for. But they're sitting in the White House wringing their hands, complaining that they've lost control of the narrative, even though they never had control of the narrative. So what what, what does that say to you? Because it just reminds me of, of a t- when, uh, when I was a kid and I got caught doing something I wasn't supposed to do, and I kept saying I didn't do it. And then finally I came clean and my dad said, well, son, you probably should have stuck with the bit. So, <laughs> uh, so what, what is it? They're sticking with the bit and it's not going to work. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, Joe Biden uh, promised too much during the campaign. Now, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, uh, you know, I, he possibly could have beat, uh, beat uh, Donald Trump if he, if he promised less, but he, he promised the world and has delivered on almost nothing. And so he certainly is going to be compared to to what he promised versus what he delivered. I found I found looking at the at the poll numbers, not just the overall poll numbers. I find some interesting uh, um, uh, statistics here. Uh, one is, you know, Democrats, uh, Democratic voters approve have a 70 percent approval uh, rating, which is which is uh, uh, about the opposite of what the overall approval rating is. But even among Democrats, uh, 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 black voters 
have a 61% approval rating, which is interesting because it means that black voters approve of, of Joe Biden less than average Democrats. And that would be usually the reverse mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. And, and so and so black voters are are, are not uh, as enthused about uh, Joe Biden as white voters. And, and when you get into into race, of course, white voters in general are, are about a 26 percent approval rating. That's Democrats and Republicans. And, and so white voters are heavily disapproving of, of, of Joe Biden. Uh, black voters are not as approving as as Democratic voters and independent voters are about at the same level as um, as white voters in general. So so they've lost in that sense, independent voters, if they if they ever had them. Um, I, I suppose people would say that if, if, if President Trump were to run again in, in 2024, that would be a gift to Joe Biden. Uh, but uh, but mm. he has to go through the midterms. And in the, in the midterms this year, uh, the Democrats are looking to get trounced. German inflation nears 50-year peak. And what's interesting is it's not just Germany. We're seeing that all over Europe. We're seeing now Latvia and Poland have people literally out, both countries gathering wood. And it sticks. Yeah, And it's summertime. God knows what's going to happen to them with winter. They'll be gathering snow. I think so. They'll be eating it. Your thoughts on uh, what's happening in European uh, economically? European well, economics. what happens in Germany uh, is is usually a bellwether for what's going to happen in Europe in general. Germany is Europe, Europe's um, um, largest economy, and so in, uh, there was a uh, almost a one percent jump in uh, in inflation in Germany in, in 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 for the month of May from uh, from April to May, and uh, it's seven point nine percent. It's higher than that in the U.S. Uh, but this this uh, general uh, inflation with a slowdown in the economy is back to the 1970s stagflation, what we call stagflation economy, in which you have high unemployment and high um, uh, inflation. And in the in the 1970s in the U.S., the misery index, which is the combination of those things, was about 20 percent. And uh, so, you know, you can see that 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 this is this is uh, what is in the future for Germany. And what's in the in the future for Europe? Europe will probably be hit stronger, harder than the U.S. Uh, by these uh, uh, these this misery index. Uh, but but the U.S. has to endure, I guess, the the, the president for four years. Whereas in in Europe, uh, people can can have uh, votes of no confidence or change in government because it's a parliamentary uh, process. Uh, and I, I expect that there will be a civil unrest and turmoil and government uh, changeover in many European countries. Uh, you know, so, um, you know, on the other hand, uh, Russian oil revenue is up uh, from from what it was before. And Vladimir Putin's uh, approval rating is, I think, about 80 percent. So the foreign policy that that Joe Biden had articulated is nothing but whether it well, the policy, whether it's foreign policy or domestic policy, utter failure. We have 30 seconds. Well, you know, one one example is this uh, uh, student loan uh, debt forgiveness, which Biden has has been saying he doesn't have the authority to do, but he has the authority to do ten thousand of it, <laughs> uh, which 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 is pretty much nothing, uh, and uh, you know it's what he campaigned on, but uh, but he could in fact uh, I guess get a political boost if he were to forgive it all, which he has the power to do, but what he has the power to do, he's not doing. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. 
Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Cardinal Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Dreams has a piece entitled, People Over Pentagon Proposal Would Take $100 Billion from the Pentagon to Fund Social Programs. The Lee Polkin Bill disproves the claim that there's not money to feed the hungry, care for the sick, cut child poverty, or protect the planet. What are we to make of this? Well, let's turn to our next guest. She's a pediatrician and co-editor of Popular Resistance, Dr. Margaret Flowers. As always, Margaret, welcome back. It's great to be with you. So progressive advocacy groups across the U.S. yesterday welcomed a new legislative proposal that would cut Pentagon spending for the next fiscal year by $100 billion and reallocate it toward top threats facing the nation that are not military in nature. Public Citizen President Robert Weissman thanked Representatives Barbara Lee and Mark Pokin co-chairs of the Defense Spending Reduction Caucus for introducing the People Over Pentagon Act of 2022 to advance our true national security interests. Your thoughts, Dr. Margaret Flowers. Well, thank you. You know, I agree with them. When you want to define what our security interests are, you can't have a secure country or society if people aren't, you know, secure that they have, if you don't have economic security, you know, if you don't have a home and money to buy the basic necessities. So I think this is a very welcome proposal. I'm uh, glad to see organizations really putting forward a plan and elucidating what it is that we need to do. I think overall, this plan even falls short. I mean, we're spending over $800 billion on the Pentagon. So this is really just a drop in the bucket. And, you know, we could be doing a whole lot more in this country to make sure that everyone has housing and education and and the things that they need. I hope that the groups will pressure the Democrats who are, you know, in a position right now where they're worried about the midterm elections to take some action to actually move this legislation. I mean, it's one thing to introduce a piece of legislation. We see that happen all the time. But the real proof is how much effort they're going to put into it to actually move that piece of legislation forward. And, you know, being the kind of cynical person I am about politics these days, I do say I think that's a good idea for this reason. Representative Conyers for years put in the Malcolm, I think 15 years, he put in the Martin Luther King um, holiday bill and it never, it wouldn't get anywhere. And eventually some times changed and he was able to get that bill through. So I think it's a good idea. You put this bill in and in the environment that we're in now, well, things may not look good for it. But I think you bring it back over and over and over. And it could be as times get more difficult, as people get more war, war, war weary, that wasn't easy, war weary, that more people get on, in, on board and it get, that we get to a point where there is an environment where something like that will be, um, you know, the people will get behind it and push it through. What do you think, Margaret? Well, I think you're right that, you know, these types of things put forward a vision of what we want to see. It's important as an organizing tool to have them out there and to keep putting them out each year, as Conyers also did with the single payer bill right. you know, from 2003 until he left office. He put out the, the bill that was the bill that the movement 
defined, HR 676. And, uh, and that was a tool that we were able to organize around and, and build support for, uh, for that. But I think it's important to remember that we can't just leave this to Congress. As you, you know, as you basically said, it's, it's, it's the people that are going to create the environment where the members of Congress feel like they have to do something. And if you already have that vision there and say, and this is what you need to do, then it's more likely to happen. I wish the progressive groups had been a little bit more, uh, uh, bold in what they were asking for. I think a hundred billion, you know, it's it's not enough, but it, it's it's something. Do you think that this signals a change in the mindset of the elite in this country? When if we go back to say World War II, there was a lot of concern about internal dissension, an ideological threat to communists, the Red Scare, the 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 Ruskies were coming to take over America. Now the mindset seems to be more militaristic and that even though I don't think a lot of people are afraid that the U.S. is going to be attacked on U.S. soil, but the threat now seems to be more weapon-related instead of ideological. It, it, do you have any sense of that or, or am I wrong? I think it's both. I think, you know, that um – they are, you know, the, the elites in this country are afraid because people are getting into a position where they're very desperate. Uh, inflation is is rising significantly. We're going to be facing, you know, the ravages of the climate crisis and food insecurity this fall, as you know, it's anticipated that the harvests are not going to be, you know, what they need to be. And, you know, and globally, this is going to be an issue. And so I think they're seeing some unrest coming. And uh, and this is their response, just as there was a response, you know, back in the in the early in the 20th century, uh, you know, where folks were like, you know, we have to do something to save capitalism or else they're going to rise up, you know, and overthrow it and want a new system. So I do think it's a very similar kind of situation uh, now and then. Okay. And it's the same, you know, with the whole robber bear. I mean, there's so many similarities now and then. Here's an interesting article that I agree with for different reasons. Common Dreams has an article, Nation on the Precipice of Fascism warns Ocasio-Cortez. The GOP said the Democratic Congresswoman has only grown more supportive in defending of what happened on January 6th. So the implication is it's January 6th and it's the GOP. I agree with her that we are on the precipice of fascism, but not over January 6th and the GOP. I feel as though um, when I look at the level of censorship, when I look at the level of militarism and how people are um, all, uh, you know, joining together behind, you know, militaristic ventures and supporting Israel, you know, and what they're doing to the Palestinians. I feel like we're on the the the, the um, on the verge or on the precipice of fascism. But I do think AOC misses the boat on the um, multi uh, political uh, or partisan reasons as to why. Your thoughts? Well, I think we're we're past the precipice of that, <laughs> and I think it's bipartisan. I mean, let's look at the, the governments that the Democrats and Republicans are supporting around the world. The fascist governments in, in Brazil, you know, and the repressive governments in Saudi Arabia, the state of Israel, uh, you know, supporting uh, right-wing fascist coups in Latin American 
countries. I mean, this is who our government is supporting. And I think that, you know, Gabriel Rockhill writes about this, I think, in in a way that makes it really easy for folks to understand, is that when you have kind of this fascist state or what Sheldon Wolin at this point, you know, calls an inverted totalitarianism, because part of fascism is some sort of totalitarianism, he calls our totalitarianism a form of managed democracy, where people have the illusion that they're in a democracy, they have the illusion that their vote makes a difference, but the whole system is manipulated and controlled by the elite class. And so, you know, if you if you look at that and what Rock Hill says is that you can either have like the the liberals where, you know, people go along with it because they're sold on it. There there's the whole propaganda part and we all kind of allow this this state to continue. If that doesn't work, the heavy hand comes down of the state comes down immediately, and we're seeing more and more uh, censorship happening and militarization happening in this country. So I think it's something that we have kind of passed the precipice on and folks should be worried about, and that's why it's important to be organizing and putting forward visions of the alternatives that we want to see. There's another common dreams piece. The American people support me, not you. In Fox debate, Sanders makes case for progressive agenda in an Oxford-style debate yesterday with Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. Sanders argued that progressive policy goals such as Medicare for all, Social Security expansion and a higher minimum wage are what the American people want. Uh, Your thoughts. And it's interesting that Sanders makes this case, but I just don't hear him enough and I don't hear other progressives enough demanding and pounding on this issue or these issues. Yeah, I agree. And actually, you know, back when we were organizing the occupation of Washington, D.C. in 2011, and we looked at the polling around the country on these issues of, you know, worker rights, reducing the military budget, uh, doubling or expanding Social Security, Medicare for all, uh, all of these types of things, you know, affordable housing, public education, the majority and even in many cases, super majorities of the public are supporting a progressive agenda. The problem is folks are not, I guess the nice way to say it is politically sophisticated. And the whole kind of political machine is geared towards saying, well, if you want this agenda, just vote Democrat, you know, we'll do it, just vote us in and we'll do it. And then, of course, you know, as we're seeing again with Joe Biden, they make these promises and they don't happen. Or folks are told you're asking for too much. You know, we'll try to give you this one little thing and let's all put our energies into trying to get this one little thing. And and of course, you know, we need big changes you know, and people should be fighting and organizing together to, to press for big changes. But uh, but, yeah, the country is definitely folks and, you know, even conservative folks on many of these issues are on the progressive side. Well, let me ask you this, too. And I've, I've, I've thought about it a little bit a different way. I mean, it's just, you know, language, but. 88% of Democrats are in favor of the last poll I saw was in, were in favor of, as an example, Medicare for all. Over 50%, like 52% of Republicans, which at that point, I think, you know what, if we're really honest, it's a centrist policy. At that point, it's it's not even a progressive policy. It's There's no ideology. When, you know, we say it's progressive, but when you get to the point that, I mean, if you look at throughout Europe, the far-right policy, uh, uh, the far-right politicians wouldn't even consider taking away health care for everyone because it's just considered a centrist general. So to some extent, when we say it's populist or, I mean, when we say it's left or progressive, we're in a way we're we're kind of missing the boat. This is just what everybody wants. I would even call it a centrist policy. What do you think, Margaret? 
Well, that's kind of what the left in the United States for the majority is. I mean, well, particularly the liberals, you know, they're, they're you know, they're, they are centrist. And I would agree with you on that. I mean, what we really need in this country, and folks are finally starting to be more vocal about it, is not a national improved Medicare for all, but a national health system. You know, we could move to a national improved Medicare for all very quickly. We already have the structure in place to do it extremely quickly. But beyond that, We've got to get the profit out of medicine if we want to actually, you know, make sure that everybody has equitable access to the care that they need. And we're not just pouring more government money into the pockets of the privateers and profiteers. So, um, yeah, I agree with you. I think we need to be, you know, considering even bolder policies as we're seeing other countries, you know, put these policies into place and they work. So, yeah. Does it surprise you or, or maybe disappoint you that even with the um – the bill that was uh, put forth by Barbara Lee, the People Over Pentagon Act, that more of the progressive caucuses aren't at outspoken and standing there with Barbara Lee. For example, I would have loved to have seen the Congressional Black Caucus, even though they never seem to do this, standing behind Barbara Lee as she put this forward. You know, it would be nice. I have to say that um, I've lost a lot of confidence. I'm not, I'm not sure if I had a ton of confidence in the beginning anyway in, in institutions like the Progressive Caucus back in, you know, 2009, 2010, when we were fighting for health reform. And, and at that point, as you point out, Garland, the vast majority, a super majority of Democrat, Democratic voters supported it. And the Progressive Caucus was you know, totally in line and uh, with the Obama administration, which was actively working to suppress the voices and any kind of push for a national health care system. And they, you know, they refused, uh, and I've written about this, they absolutely refused to do anything to to advance it and actually did, you know, were an obstacle to it. So, um, you know, that <laughs> it's, it's just a system right now, I think, where the progressive Democrats, there's mm-hmm. so much control of members of Congress, they just don't have any power. They haven't for a long time, or they're afraid to use it. They were the largest caucus back then. I think it's the latter, because there's power in numbers. And so the more of them that stand together, the more power they can demonstrate. Dr. Margaret Flowers, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. In violation of international law, the U.S. charge d'affaires to Eritrea is on opposition media plotting regime change from his office in Asmara. What does this mean for the ongoing struggle in the region, and what does this say about U.S. policy? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's an independent journalist and historian, Thomas Mountain, as always. Thomas, welcome back. Yeah, thanks. Good to be back. You know, um, Tony, the U.S. Secretary of State, Tony, the Blinken liar, uh, has appointed a new enforcer. They, we call him uh, Mike the Spike Hammer to, uh, you know, to try to bring about regime change and restore in, in the Horn of Africa and restore the status quo for Pax Americana. Now, as a part of this, 
he's you know he's been lecturing the uh, uh, Ethiopian leaders, you know, trying to hammer American common sense into their head, and he's given the go ahead for this uh, pretty outrageous uh, event to take place. The uh, the TPLF has funded this conference of of the so-called Eritrean opposition, was made up entirely of Eritrean uh, Ethiopian TPLF supporters, and uh, the U.S. Charged Affairs, the the State Department capo in Asmara, Washington, in Eritrea, was the one that uh, got on the satellite and uh, participated in this. You know, I mean, it's, it's a violation of the Geneva Conventions for a U.S. diplomat to. Uh, call for you know participate in in the activities of a regime change organization while on duty, and uh, you know so it's it's uh, well it's nothing new you know U.S. has had an 80 year history of, ho- of absolute hostility even to the very creation of Eritrea, going back to the 1940s. So uh, you know they've they've been uh, supporting and funding and instigating the TPLF to attempt to destroy Eritrea, particularly around the war in 1998 to 2000, when, according to the TPLF terrorists' own account, 123,000 Ethiopian soldiers were killed in this war, which means about a half a million, almost 500,000 casualties took place. So, you know, the United States is particularly concerned about the Horn of Africa, because whether you or I or your readers your listeners understand what's going on. The CIA, the National Security Establishment in the United States, they know how critical, strategically critical the Horn of Africa is. That's why just a few days ago, they sent their, their the princess of chaos, Victoria Nuland. I mean, she's the, Hillary Clinton was her mentor, uh, the queen of chaos. She's the princess of chaos who specializes in regime change and best known for what she did in in Ukraine in 2014, they sent the U.S. sent her to Somalia to first, give it a first-hand approval of the recent successful regime change the U.S. carried out in Somalia when they got rid of the independent leader, uh, President Formaggio, and installed one of their lackeys, reinstalled one of their lackeys. So, you know, the fact that uh, maybe a lot of us out there think the point of Africa is remote and not very important is not reflected in the actions of, you know, the U.S. national security establishment. And uh, Victoria Nuland's presence in, in Somalia and Mogadishu is a testament to that. So, but, you know, what's really going on now is the U.S. is trying to relaunch an attempt to uh, carry out regime change in the Horn of Africa and recon- take control of this strategically critical area. Um, you know, they've, they wanted to get rid of uh, Abiy Ahmed. They uh, instigated and supported the regime change. A coup attempt by the TPLF terrorists, who uh, in November 2020 tried to uh, uh, carry out a coup against the Ethiopian government, the democratically elected Ethiopian government. So the uh, uh, what's going on now is that you know that failed basically because the Eritreans were invited by uh, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed to intervene militarily, which the you know the Eritreans did because. The Ethiopian army had been hollowed out. At one point, 85 percent of the Ethiopian army was comprised of TPLF cadre. So when they pulled their soldiers out of the army, the army was a hollow shell, and they were preparing to just basically roll into Addis Ababa and overthrow the government of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. 
and Abi Ahmed went to Eritrea and requested their support, and Eritrean army divisions came in and, and crushed this uh, the initial uh, attempted coup. According to the TPLF, they claimed the Eritreans killed 50,000 of their soldiers. That was the best, the backbone of the, Ethiopia, the TPLF army. If I may ask this, there's, a, there's another article here. Eritrea, in, in, uh, Eritrea committing, quote, crimes against humanity, rights group says. And they go on to say, uh, a leading human rights group says Eritrea is now committing crimes against humanity. When I see that, I always think, eh, the U.S., you know, they are always going to accuse you of committing crimes against humanity when they want to overthrow the government. What it is, I, 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 my understanding is that after the TPLF lost power, that the new um, president, the new leader for Ethiopia, signed a peace deal with Eritrea, and there was fairly, things were very peaceful. What is, it, what is it about the Eritrean government, their independence or whatever, that the U.S. hates so bad? Well, I, I, you know, I wrote an article some years back called Eritrea, the Cuba of Africa, because just as Cuba is the only government that came to power through the barrel of a gun in Latin America, and has established a really truly socialist, independent, uh, revolutionary government, the Eritrean government's the only government that came to power through the barrel of a gun through their 30-year armed struggle for national libera- liberation against what I call the Abyssinian imperialists, the colonial power headed at one time by Haile Selassie and later by Mengistu. So the Eritreans came to power not through negotiations, not through elections, things that the West can control, but through the armed struggle. And they successfully liberated their country and then refused to take IMF and World Bank money, which is the main way the, the you know the banksters in the West control the, the African governments through their control of the African economies. They, they give them these crippling loans that there's no way they can pay back. And then they come in with their austerity programs and take over. You know, I mean, the World Bank will not fund agricultural self-sufficiency in Africa. All they will fund is programs where you can export to the West. So Eritrea refuses to play that game. And Eritrea, you know, I consider Eritrea probably the one of the best, if not the best countries in the world that's prepared for the upcoming climate catastrophe because Eritrea has spent the majority of the country's resources in developing food self-sufficiency through water conservation. The government's built like something like 800 water reservoirs in the last 10 years, including nine huge reservoirs that, that hold billions of barrels, uh, billions of meters of water. So Eritrea is independent. It's self-sufficient. You know, it, it doesn't bow down to anybody. It's the, one of the only countries that, you know, stood up and said sanctions are illegal, that they uh, oppose sanctions against anyone, including Russia in the case of Ukraine. And uh, this is a, like a thorn in the side of the United States. They're a threat of a good example. And their threat had spread, was spreading to Ethiopia. Now, uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed is, seems to have some second thoughts about all this. Uh, because the United States has been threatening him with these these uh, ferocious uh, sanctions. But, you know, they're trying to cripple, they're threatening to cripple his economy through these sanctions and, you know, and result in millions of Ethiopians left to starve because the country's been a, a bigger and surviving on handouts from the West for decades now. So, you know, Eritrea doesn't beg. Eritrea doesn't survive on handouts. Eritrea is trying to get Ethiopia, one of the largest countries in Africa, to become self-sufficient, which they were start, they're starting to do. 
And this is the, the spread of the threat of a good example, which makes Eritrea a natural target, just like Cuba is a natural target. Because if, you know, if the Cuban example spreads to South America, then the United States is going to be in a big problem. Well, Eritrea, the, you know, the Horn of Africa, the majority of the trade between the, two, the world's two largest trading partners, uh, Europe and Asia, passes through the Red Sea. So the Horn of Africa is critically strategic, whether you and I or your listeners understand that. So, you know, I mean, to have, I mean, for example, what's going on in Yemen? Why is the U.S. continuing to support this Saudi war in Yemen? Because the idea of uh, the Houthis, a nationalist, Islamic-based, pro-Iran government coming to power in Yemen is a nightmare for the United States. I mean, the the Bab al-Mandeb, the entrance between the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean, it's only about... 12 miles wide it is narrowest. Mm-hmm. Houthis could set up artillery in the caves on the banks of the Red Sea and basically shut down the Baal Baal Mandeb. Just imagine if the Houthis came to power, they were to say to the Americans, hey, you are no longer going to be intervening in Syria. Get out or we'll shut down the Baal Baal Mandeb. Or they're going to say, you're no longer going to be supporting your, your dictatorship in, in Egypt or we're going to shut down the Baal Baal Mandeb. This is intolerable. Just even the idea of it is intolerable for the United States. Well, Yemen's on one side of the Baal Baal Mandeb, Eritrea's on the other. So the idea that Eritrea or Yemen could, you know, control the, the trade between Asia and Europe is something that the United States is just not going to tolerate. In this article that Garland uh, mentioned, the Christian Solidarity Network's uh, head, Ellis Heasley points to the U.N. Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in Eritrea in June of 2016 found reasonable grounds, reasonable grounds to believe that crimes against humanity, namely enslavement, imprisonment, enforcement, disappearance, torture and other human inhuman acts had been committed in a widespread and systemic manner. This is the evidence that they provide is a report from 2016 where they believed that the crimes were committed, not really from at least this article, uh, providing evidence that, in fact, they had. So this really seems to be uh, this accusation or these allegations really seems to be uh, more of a stretch than a reality. Well, I, I lived in Eritrea from 2006 to 2021, so I was there when these, when these reports were being issued, and I tell you, they're complete fabrications. Nothing of the kind was taking place. Just like the, the accusations against Eritrea committing crimes in Tigray was complete fabrications. I mean, the Eritreans were noted through their 30-year independence struggle for being the most humane uh, military there is. I mean, 170,000 Ethiopian soldiers were taken prisoner in the course of this independence war, and the Eritreans treated them and fed them humanely, even though some of their own people were starving at the time. So Eritrea is not a country that is known for carrying out human rights violations. What the, All the so-called evidence that's taken place was based upon fabricated interviews and reports and fake uh, witnesses that Basically, our TPLF people or TPLF supporters are people being threatened by the TPLF. So these reports, I tell everybody, they're created by what I call liars for hire and what I also call the human rights mob, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. I mean, I've been attacked by name in an article in Amnesty International because I expose these guys and expose the crimes that they're committing on behalf of the American national security establishment. So I tell people, don't believe anything you read and almost nothing you see about the Horn of Africa because it's all 
just, you know, it, it's, it's horse manure. They, it's just fabrication. So they're trying to slander Reacher's reputation and deny Reacher access to, you know, resources from outside. I mean, right now, the, I, we're hearing reports the United States is about to uh, quietly pushing U.S. agricultural companies to resume shipments of, of fertilizer from Belarus and Russia. Well, Arecha has been trying to get a major sulfate of potash mine up and operating to produce a million tons a year of potash, an organic fertilizer that could go a long way to help producing the food the world needs. And yet the United States is blocked this through sanctions back last October. Last November, U.S. is, you know, it's just the, the, they're bending over backwards to defame Eritrea. And uh, uh, I think this latest attempt to, uh, you know, propagandize and give support to the TPLF's attempts, the fantasies that they're going to somehow have regime change in Eritrea, I think is a good example. Thomas Mountain, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Yeah, well, you know, I'm out here in the middle of a rainforest in uh in in Pahoa in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, you know, listen to the birds and the bees. Yesterday, I was swimming with the turtles and the black <laughs> Any case, I I figured I'd make you jealous. Okay, ciao. Well, you are. Thank you, <laughs> folks. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Supreme Court rules against detained immigrants facing deportation. The Supreme Court yesterday twice ruled against detained immigrants who seek release hearings while they fight deportation orders. What are these decisions, and... How significant of a blow are they? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. She's a community organizer, political analyst, consultant, and trainer, Maru Mora Villapando. As always, Maru, welcome back. Thank you for the invitation. So in one decision, the court said federal law does not require a bond hearing after six months of detention for those who can show they fear persecution if returned to their home countries. And in the second, the court held undocumented immigrants with similar cases cannot band together as a class to seek relief, but must pursue their cases individually. Let's take these decisions one by one. What is the significance of this issue around bond hearings? Well, it's it's tremendous. Um, Let's remind your audience that uh, people that are on their ICE custody, which are facing deportation proceedings, are facing an administrative proceeding, which means they're not um, given automatically legal representation. So that's for one. And second, um, it's really an uncertainty when their cases will be resolved, um, precisely because of the lack of uh, legal representation and the very well-known long, long processes that uh, take uh, in, the, in the immigration system, you know, years, sometimes decades, uh, it just makes it more difficult for people that are currently detained in what they call detention centers, but they're really prisons. Everything looks like a prison and without legal representation. And also 
most of these detention centers are run by private uh, companies. And so it's extremely expensive to be detained. So one of the very few recourses that people have is to ask for a bond hearing. They're not saying we want a bond already, set, set a bond amount and get me out. What they're saying is at least give me a hearing so I can have the opportunity to present my case and be released from detention while my case continues. And so what this decision says is, no, you're going to be detained with the, without the access to that kind of hearing. It seems to me that we're at a period of time where you can pretty much expect that most of these immigration cases that go to the um, that go to the Supreme Court are going to end up. Um, it, it, let's just say, not in the best interest of the immigrants. Um, it seems like that that's the direction we're going with the current Supreme Court. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, this with this Supreme Court, most people in the United States, we are going to be facing a really huge battle just for keeping basic rights. Um, and I, what I see, and I'm not a lawyer, but I've been working on this for many, many, many years. I myself was in, in deportation proceedings, um, and I work with people that are currently detained fighting their own cases. Uh, and we already know how difficult and complex is the immigration law. We already know that it's been built to, for people to lose their cases. And especially the detention settings are built so you give up and you don't fight your case. Because who wants to be detained for years at end? And when we have this kind of Supreme Court decisions that, you know, they're pretty much saying, that's it. You have no, no other relief. Uh, it makes it very difficult for people to even decide, continue fighting their cases. Who is going to say, I'm going to stay here, whatever it takes to win my case? Well, they don't know that it might take years. Uh, and we know, we know cases that, uh, of people that have been detained six to eight years. Even at one time, we met a, a person that was detained for nine years. Wow. What does this mean? Are, are we going to see people detained for 20 years from now on? So this first issue, uh, a gentleman, uh, Antonio Ortega Martinez, he had uh, repeatedly entered the, Uni the United States unlawfully. He was detained by ICE. And he claimed that if he were sent back to Mexico, that he would be beaten and tortured by gangs. An official found his argument credible that he would be persecuted or tortured if he returned to Mexico. He was detained while waiting for a judge to consider his request to put off his deportation. And the Court of Appeals of the Third Circuit agreed saying that he deserved a bond hearing after six months of detention. And Justice Sonia Sotomayor said that this was a mistake, that there's no plausible construction of the law at issue. She said this requires the government to provide bond hearings before immigration judges after six months with the government bearing the burden of proving by clear and convincing evidence that a detained non-citizen poses a flight risk or a danger to the community. She added that there's nothing in the law that prevents the government from offering such hearings. So help us understand what Judge or Justice Sotomayor is actually saying here. Well, what I understand is that she's saying that 
in immigration law, the government has no uh, burden of proof of anything, <laughs> really. And, and actually, that's what we've seen again and again. It is on the person in, the, in proceedings to prove why we must stay, why they need to be released. And so this is, this is important because it shows how immigration law is an extension of the penal law, of criminal law, but very well structured so it doesn't include all the rights that you have in, under criminal law. Because under criminal law, you're given a, a lawyer if you cannot afford one, right? You, you are supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. That's the total opposite in, in immigration law. What you're seeing and what her decision is saying is, no, immigrants don't have any of those rights. And the, and the government should not bur- get, get the burden of, of proof. It is on the immigrants themselves. And even if we get that chance to prove, it's very dismissed every time. We've, we've seen, I've been in, in court hearings um, at the detention center here in Tacoma, Washington, where immigrants present their, their evidence. And I've seen the, the U.S. government lawyers pulling on their laptops a Google uh, search on the country where they're being sent to and saying, no, it looks to me that everything looks fine here. You know, <laughs> this country looks just good to me. And the, the judge, the times that I've seen, every time they agree with the, the government, regardless of all the evidence that is presented by, by immigrants. And, and these are immigrants with legal representation. And the vast majority of people under immigration proceedings and detained does not, they don't have legal representation. And so this, this decision is saying, we'll just continue doing what we're doing. We're going to make sure that people in detention and under uh, um, immigration uh, custody uh, enforcement um, and under these proceedings don't have the right, the basic rights that people assume that anybody in the U.S. should have to have a fair hearing, to have access to a hearing. So as I understand the, the law, and this is a very basic and elemental statement, that immigrants have the right to request a hearing to allow them to stay in the country. And the Trump administration seems to have decided, okay, we're we're not going to challenge that, but we're going to make the process so onerous, we're going to make the process so difficult for you, Mr. or Mrs. Immigrant, that you're not going to want to go through the process. And now it seems as though, at least on this particular case, Sotomayor is is agreeing with the Trumpian logic that has now been carried over into the Biden administration. Is that accurate? Well, let's just specify what kind of hearing. This is just a hearing to be released uh, on bond. Right. So even that, just the access to be released and the process continues, but then you can be home with your family and you can defend yourself against mm-hmm. this process. It's been denied. Okay. So if you're released on bond, you're an immigrant and you have this hearing and the hearing says, okay, basically you can be released on bond. You can stay here in the country if you've got family members, wherever you stay. And then you go through the process. But basically you can stay here while you go through the process. And now they're saying, nope. You get deported immediately. No, no, no. What no. they're saying oh, is you, you don't up. you don't exactly. You don't get a bond hearing. You stay in jail until 
you're hearing. Right. And as Maru said, that can be as much as nine years. Right. So we're jailing people without even really any level of due process. Basically, I mean, actually jailing people indefinite detention with no due process. Is that right? Exactly. This is this is what it means. It means the possibility of having people detained indefinitely uh, with no that basic basic access. Again, we're we're talking about just the fact that to be released, but the process continues against you. So, getting back to my to my point, you are making the decision: Am I going to stay here in Mexico, for example, run the risk of being beaten and tortured by gangs? Or do I run the risk, cross the border, and run the risk of being held in in prison in the United States indeterminately until they decide that they're going to give me a hearing? That's right. Uh, Let me tell you, just last week I talked to a person uh, detained that uh, he's been detained for three years now. And um, he told me, you know what, I'm supposed to get my hearing soon. If they deny my case again, I'm just not going to fight anymore. I'm tired. I'm really tired. This is really expensive for my family. I cannot continue being a burden to them. I've been exposed to COVID twice already. I'm not getting the medicines that I'm supposed to get. I'm not getting the therapy that I'm supposed to get because I'm sick. I don't want to spend another three years here fighting. I'm just really tired. Now, this was without this decision that we just got yesterday. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that once he learns of these decisions, he's definitely going to say, this is it. I'm not going to continue fighting. And he has the chance, but it's really expensive. He needs lawyers and his family needs to sustain his um, day-to-day expenses in in this detention center. This detention center last month went on hunger strike. There were at least 50 people going on hunger strike twice, precisely because of the horrible conditions that they face. One of the the demands they um, released was we want to talk to our ICE uh, deportation officers. They don't come. They don't visit. I don't know what's going on with my case. Because of COVID, which is rampant right now throughout uh, detention centers, mm-hmm. um, people are placed in quarantine. They don't have access to the legal uh, uh, law library. And so that also impacts their cases if they're able to read English and they're able to, to follow the instructions and probably represent themselves. Now with this decision... I think a lot of people are going to give up very, very soon. The second decision from the court not allowing uh, immigrants to band together and seek relief in class action suits. One would think that this would be something that they that the courts would want to do because they'd be able to get rid of a whole lot of cases uh, with one with one hearing. Right. And what they're saying is they have to come individually. And that I think that's one of the basis of uh, how cases are managed throughout the country, right, to do class actions. We just saw a class action lawsuit that was successful last year here precisely in Tacoma, where people did a class action lawsuit against um, the GEO group that owns and runs the detention center for uh, having them work for only a dollar a day. And as a class action, they were able to win. And therefore, now everybody that worked in this detention center for a dollar a day for GEO from 2014 to 2021, they are going to band together into getting the money that GEO stole from there, all the, their wages they, they stole. And with this kind of decision, if, if we come up with another kind of fight of that kind, as they say in the we we're not able to band together and represent ourselves together. This is just ridiculous. Maru. Maura Villapando, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. 
Thank you for the opportunity. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Washington Post has a piece entitled, A Black Army Vet Spent 16 Months in Solitary. Then a jury heard the evidence against him. For 16 months and all but a random hour every other day, Andrew Johnson languished in solitary confinement in a California jail. The first day, November 12th, 2014, was hardly different from the 479th day. What's going on here on a larger national scale? Well, let's turn to our next guest. He's a journalist, author, and co-host of Political Misfits, heard here on Radio Sputnik. John Kiriakou, as always, John, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be with you. So a nighttime encounter with two strangers in San Jose, California, led to Mr. Johnson's arrest for attempted murder. He insisted he was defending himself and had not, and had done nothing wrong. But at 26, he was sent to a solitary immediately, sent to solitary immediately after he was booked in jail to await trial. Quote, when they put you in solitary confinement, you're no longer thinking clearly. Johnson, 33, says now you're thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm trapped. When you read this, John Kiriakou, uh, what came to mind? Oh, it, it practically brought tears to my eyes. You know, there's so much to say about this. Where do you even begin? Uh, the, the United Nations has declared the U.S. practice of solitary confinement as a form of torture. And it is a form of torture. In most uh, countries of the world, uh, you can't be held in solitary confinement for more than 15 days. And why would they use solitary confinement on anybody anyway? There are normally two reasons. One is because you are a danger to yourself or to others. The other is that you are in danger that somebody has targeted you. And, of course, it's used as punishment. In this case of Andrew Johnson, though, it was, it was just something pro forma. It was just something that they did. They, they put him in solitary confinement, and then they just left him there. Now, what happens in solitary confinement? Or before we even get there, what is solitary confinement? You mentioned that he was given uh, a, a random hour every other day where he could leave the, the cell. In many cases in the United States, when you leave that cell, it's to go to an attached cage where you can just walk in circles for an hour. That's your one hour of exercise. Or it's 20 minutes for a shower, which you normally get um, uh, two a week. So it's not that you even really have something to look forward to. 23 or 24 hours a day, you are in, uh, uh, well, when I was in prison, I was in a six-foot by 10-foot concrete block rectangle for 24 hours a day. And twice a week, I was allowed to go out and walk in circles and take a shower. And that's it. Now, 
when you're alone like that all the time with nothing but your thoughts, no TV, no radio, in many cases, no books, you soon begin to lose your mind. You start talking to yourself. Uh, sometimes you hear voices after a while. Uh, if you go into a prison that has uh, solitary confinement, uh, you can hear people screaming, and they're not even making sense. And it's because they've begun to lose their minds. So just the notion that this poor guy who, who had served his country bravely, who was defending himself uh, against a criminal act being perpetrated against him, and then was automatically cast into solitary confinement. It's a crime against humanity, truly. Now, John, I didn't. I guess that leads me to believe. So, were you officially in? I mean, because here's my question: uh, I, you can officially be put in a, a solitary confinement, but they can put you in a cell and without a cellmate. So it's not like officially on paper solitary confinement, and it still amounts to the same thing. Now, were you actually officially in solitary confinement? Uh, excuse me, confinement unofficially, or or how'd that work? I, I was officially in solitary confinement, but only for nine days. Uh, so for me, it, okay, it was it was a pain. I lost ten pounds in nine days because, you know, you get you get a, a, an apple and a and a a little cup of uh, Kool Aid for breakfast. Uh, you get a bologna sandwich and a Kool Aid for lunch, and a bologna sandwich and a Kool Aid for dinner, and dinner served at three in the afternoon. Um, yeah, you you starve in there. Uh, I was allowed books, so I was able to read, although I wasn't allowed to have my glasses for the first week, so or for the first five days. So for four days, at least, I could, I could read, and I knew that it was coming to an end soon. But, you know, we've got people, Garland, in this country who have been, who have been held in solitary confinement for as long as 44 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's not another country on earth that incarcerates people in solitary confinement for decades at a time. There was a, a piece in the New York Times magazine. I still remember the date. It was in May of 2015, talking about solitary confinement at the Supermax prison in Florence, uh, Colorado, saying that one inmate became so desperate for human contact that he was able to smash the narrow glass in his window in his cell, and he ate the glass just so that he would have to be rushed to a hospital so he could have human contact with nurses and doctors. It's, you can't help but to go crazy. As evidence has mounted about the long-term mental health damage caused by solitary confinement, there's been a seismic shift in the willingness of federal and state authorities to reform or eliminate its use in prisons. Have you found that to be true? I've, I, yes and no. What I have found is that... Activists all say the right things. Activists know what a serious uh, problem this is. Uh, We've got governmental officials, elected officials who also say the right thing. But then when it comes to actual change, we really don't see actual change. Now, the, the, the only real change we've seen the last couple of years is the state of Ohio banned solitary confinement for juveniles, which means the other 49 states put children in solitary confinement, if you can imagine such a thing. Um, So people say the right things. Our elected officials say the right things. When it comes to actually implementing change, 
Um, no, we're not seeing we're not seeing much in the way of change. And if I could add one other thing to that too, you know, solitary confinement was actually invented as a punishment in the United States. It was invented at a prison called the Eastern State Penitentiary, which is in the city of Philadelphia, right in downtown Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. It was the first maximum security penitentiary in the United States. It opened in the early 1800s, and the theory was was the belief was. If you put a man in a cell with only his clothes, some food, and a Bible, mm-hmm. he'll have nothing else to do but read the Bible, realize the, the error of his ways, and come out a reformed individual. Instead, everybody just went crazy, and it's not gotten any better ever since. In fact, that's where the word penitentiary comes from, because you were there to serve penance. Exactly. Wasn't that also known as the Walnut Street Jail, I believe? That's right. Okay. Walnut Street Jail. On Walnut yes. Street in, in, in Philadelphia. Correct. There was another very interesting element to this article that gets glossed over all too often. Prosecutors offered Mr. Johnson a lesser sentence in exchange for a guilty plea, but he refused to accept it. Right. So they were trying to a plea bargain their way out of their complicity in this atrocity, and he refused to take the bait. I'm so glad you brought that up, because I think that is a critical part of this story. At the federal level, the Justice Department wins 98.2% of its cases, according to ProPublica. Almost every one of those wins (laughs) is a result of a plea bargain because of two tactics that the Justice Department uses, that, that all prosecutors use. One is, is venue shopping, where they'll seek to charge you where you're most likely to be found guilty and most likely to be given the, the most severe sentence. The second thing is called charge stacking. Let's say you really have done something. Let's say that you, uh, you uh, were caught with some drugs. They won't charge you with possession of drugs or just with possession of drugs. They'll charge you with five, 10, 20 felonies. And then they'll wait until you go bankrupt from your legal fees. And then they'll come back and say, okay, plead guilty to these two charges and we'll drop the other 18 charges. So you're looking at, let's say two years, or if you go to trial where you're most likely going to lose, you're looking at 20, 30, 40 years. So what do you do? You're innocent, but do you roll the dice? Knowing that you have a 1.8% chance of winning, most people don't. You know, there's this old joke that everybody in prison is innocent. One of the things that I discovered early on in my prison term was that a lot of people are innocent. Yeah, and ultimately you end up with innocent people. And what we, the other thing we find in looking at this is that people who are awaiting trial, who have not been convicted of anything, can end up in uh, solitary confinement for long time, long periods of time. Oh yes, and and the pandemic set us back even more, where where we went, you know, many months where uh, where people weren't going on trial because the courthouses were closed. You know, one of the worst places for this kind of thing is New York City. Uh, You have people at Rikers Island that are there for two years, three years awaiting trial. And the reason that they're sitting in a jail cell all this time is because they can't afford bail. So what do you do? You're just stuck. This is what happens to poor people. 
not only can you not afford an attorney and have to be have to be represented by an overworked and understaffed and underpaid public defender, but you can't even make the bail. So you can participate in your own defense and at least sleep in your own bed at night. And also what can then wind up happening is you just get lost in the paper. That's that's right. That happens a lot. It happens all the time. And it's also juveniles who get lost in the paper. You know, we incarcerate a lot of juveniles in mm-hmm. this country mm-hmm. and, and they're treated as adults. You know, you, you've get you've got 10 year olds in some uh, states that are tried as adults. It's outrageous. What's the solution here, John Kiriakou? You know, I kind of like the, the French system where the prosecution and the defense work together to determine the facts of the case. And then they negotiate a settlement to the case, just like it was a, uh, a, a civil mm-hmm. uh, case, a civil mm-hmm. suit. Um, it, the, the goal being the truth. The truth is what both sides want. Um, and also every attorney, every, every uh, prosecutor in France has to also do time as, um, as a defense attorney. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to get, whether you're poor or rich, you're going to get a good lawyer who knows what he or she is doing. Okay. I, I think that if people had access to decent legal representation in this country, we wouldn't have some of the criminal justice problems that we have. And if, and if it were less of an adversarial system and more of a system that is actually seeking justice, then exactly. we'd come out with a better outcome. John Kiriakou, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Venezuela's Maduro inks 20-year cooperation plan with Iran amidst foreign tour. This is reported by Venezuelan Analysis. With our tour of Turkey, Algeria, and Iran, we have consolidated the deep friendships as brother peoples, said President Maduro. How big of a deal is this on its terms, and what does it signal going forward? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political analyst and editor at Venezuelan Analysis, Ricardo Vaz. As always, Ricardo, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Always great to be here. Talk about the particulars of the deal, and then is it an even bigger deal philosophically in terms of what it demonstrates going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because it's it's a long-term deal, right? It's not just some piecemeal agreements to do this or that. It's really a 20-year plan. It's very light on details so far. I suspect we're going to see more as these things start to materialize on the ground. But I think it's a, it's a natural evolution of the relationship between Venezuela and Iran. I mean, this, this, this is not recent. I mean, when, when Chavez was in power and it was Ahmadinejad, the president in, in Iran, the, 
the, the mutual interest of, of being enemies of U.S. imperialism brought them together. In the beginning, it was more, uh, you know, a relationship built on that, you know, solidarity in the face of imperialist attacks. But most recently, it has grown on more solid economic terms because of, of U.S. sanctions. I think in the end, it was really uh, the last place that Venezuela had to turn when sanctions closed all these doors. And we have to give credit to Iran because it was it, it uh, stretched out the hand to Venezuela in a, in a time of, of, of great need. So all we know about this 20-year deal is that it spans a bunch of areas, you know, tourism, agriculture, technology, and most impo- importantly, uh, uh, the energy sector, you know, so oil in particular. This, this has been, it's, it's again, a buildup of what we have seen in recent years, because, you know, sanctions targeted the oil industry very hard, and, and Iran was a, a key ally, first helping Venezuela bring its refineries back to some oper- op- operational capacity. Maduro said that right now Venezuela is producing all the fuel it needs. I think it's a slight exaggeration, but we're not very far away. And that's, uh, of course, uh, thanks to Iranian uh, assistance and, and technology and, and, and materials. But also uh, more recently, beginning in, in September last year, Iran also began supplying condensate, which is a light crude that Venezuela needs to dilute its extra heavy crude into these exportable grades. So this, this alliance is now a key component of, of Venezuela's most important industry, you know, for better and for worse. It's, it's, it's still a very oil-dependent economy. And the, the latest uh, agreements that were announced when there were visits from high-ranking Iranian officials were deals to revamp two of the country's main refi- refineries to its mac- maximum capacity. So Venezuela can actually, uh, in, a, in a few years, go back to being a fuel exporter. So that's the, perhaps the, the technical side of it. And I think philosophically, as you were saying, it's very significant because it comes at the time, and, I'm sure, and we're going to touch on this as we continue, where the U.S. just had this summit of the Americas, which no matter how you want to look at it, it just exposed the declining U.S. hegemony. So I think it's significant that Venezuela is kind of simultaneously flexing its uh, diplomatic muscles in building these ties with Iran. Before, there were also visits to to Turkey and Algeria with some high-level cooperation commissions. There's not many details there. But it also allowed Venezuela to reaffirm positions of principle. For example, when Maduro was in Algeria, there was a public commitment to support the Palestinian cause and the Sahrawi cause in, in Western in Western Sahara. So I think uh, internationally, Venezuela's standing is as good as it's been for, I don't know, maybe five years. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering also, you know, you mentioned that um, President Maduro is on, a, is on this tour. You know, he's been to Turkey and in Algeria, he's and, and, and uh, et cetera. And I think that I don't think it's an accident that this tour occurred immediately after the summit of the Americas, that maybe this was timed so that after um, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba got a lot of support from around the world and it was, you know, very uh, 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 widely reported about the exclusion and the support that they got, that they went, that President Maduro went abroad as a result of that. I mean, after that, to kind of utilize that as momentum. Yeah, it, it was simultaneous, actually. The Maduro landed in Turkey right in the middle of, of the summit. So it was uh, 
in directly or indirectly a message of saying, you know, I don't actually need to be in the summit of the Americas. There's plenty, plenty of people there speaking up for, for Venezuela. In the meantime, I'm going to show you that uh, the country is very far from being isolated and it's actually going to continue working in this uh, multipolar horizon that is very present in, in, the, in the foreign policy of the Bolivarian process. And President Maduro said, we have reached the year 2022 in better shape, more prepared and stronger to unite the forces of Iran and Venezuela in a truly impressive map of cooperation. I think also being not only riding the wave of the political support that was coming out of uh, the summit for the Americas or the reaction to that, but with the Venezuelan economy growing as it, at the rate that it is growing, I think also demonstrates a real tangible power. So not only is there this ideological support and this diplomatic support, but he now comes into the game a much stronger with a much stronger country based upon the development of the Venezuelan economy. Yeah, I mean, that, that's absolutely correct. You know, besides the, I was talking about the country being in, in a better diplomatic position. It's also in a much better economic position. And there are forecasts of economic growth from, I don't know, 10 to 20%. The Bank of, Bank of America recently published a, kind of an internal report for its investors saying that it expects the Venezuelan economy to grow by 15%. Of course, we're talking about large growth of an economy that really contracted by maybe three quarters in the past seven years, but still it's by, by far the most uh, positive prospect in, in, in the hemisphere. So that also has strengthened Maduro's position that, and that's why he now feels he can actually go to these countries. He, he was in Kuwait just today and negotiate these cooper cooperation deals, which will further even more the, the economic recovery. And if we're talking about the backdrop of U.S. sanctions, which I, I do believe that they still place a very hard ceiling or a, a tight ceiling on, on the economic recovery, the fact is that there's a clear feeling that the worst has passed. And now it's a matter of improving, whether that's slowly or not so slowly. So it also puts the, the Venezuelan government in a better position, in a, bet, in a better bargaining position with regards to the United States. Interesting article in Orinoco Tribune. Summit of the Americas was a victory for Maduro. Biden-Guaido phone call was damage control. And did you see the uh, – we haven't spoken with you since, but recently there was coverage that uh, Juan Guaido went into a restaurant in Venezuela and uh, was, uh, shall we say, attacked and uh, – he had a shown the door. Yes, he was. He was. He was. Well, he was helped to the exit um, by a group of. Yes, uh, he was ushered, 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 ushered out. Ushered out by people wielding chairs. Yes. Um, <laughs> your thoughts on um, the article and uh, the most unfortunate incident that happened to uh, Juan Guaido and what that what we learned. From, oh, also, my understanding is those were opposition people that it were wasn't the Chavistas who ran him out. Your thoughts on all of that. And what do you know about that incident? Yeah, let, let's take it by parts. The, the first article you were mentioning on the Orinoco Tribune, that's based on a report by the Associated Press. And the Associated Press is always first in line to do damage control for Guaido and for uh, the U.S. foreign policy. So in this case, they were doing damage control about damage control that, you know, Guaido was not invited, but he got to talk to Biden for a grand total of 17 minutes as Biden was being driven to the, to the summit location. 
And I mean, they, they always, I mean, they say that uh, this was bad for Guaido and then try to shield him as much as possible. But indeed, it has been a tough week for, or a tough couple of weeks for Venezuela's uh, self-proclaimed, quote-unquote, interim president. There were two incidents. One last week in, in Sulia, which is a state governed by the opposition, where his hard-right party wanted to stage a meeting and there was, a, a, I mean, two groups throwing chairs at each other. It wasn't clear who, who I mean, one group was clearly of Guaido's supporters. It wasn't clear who the other was because this is a state governed by another opposition faction that's not very fond of Guaido. I mean, nobody is very fond of Guaido right now, just, uh, you know, U.S. politicians and, and Marco Rubio. And then last weekend, this incident that you were talking about in a restaurant, this was in another state governed by the opposition, by a different opposition faction, which is also not fond at all of Guaido. And it was like a, a group that entered the restaurant and uh, not so politely uh, got Guaido to leave. I mean, the speculation in, in the media is that this is a group from, uh, a Chavista group from the Socialist Party. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it was, but what, what, I found, what I found amazing and outrageous in the reporting is this assumption that, you know, this guy who is supported by a foreign power uh, has tried coup attempts and mercenary invasion, has called for sanctions that have imposed tremendous hardship on everyone, is supposed to just walk around freely, you know, and everyone, everyone in the country despises him. It's actually surprising that these kinds of incidents have not happened before. And also uh, a, fun, a funny consequence that you had all these U.S. officials and other U.S. puppets in the region lining up to say that, oh, those responsible need to be brought to justice. But I mean, you're saying that this guy is the interim president. So, you know, if he's in charge, why can't he bring them to justice? So it just exposes on one hand, just how isolated and despised Guaido is. And on the other, how uh, out of touch U.S. policy is when, when it comes to Venezuela. They just don't know what to do. They just keep repeating the script uh, because I think they, they lack the courage to admit that it's going nowhere. And to that point... National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan downplayed suggestions the U.S. was snubbing Guaido. Speaking aboard Air Force One, Sullivan insisted the decision to not invite anyone from his camp and instead involve civil society activists was a tactical one to encourage negotiations between Maduro and his opponents that leads to ultimately a better future for Venezuela. What that says to me is that they've moved past Guaido, and when they start involving civil society activists, that sounds like what the National Association for Democracy and other types of pro. It sounds like they're putting their money in other areas that, for the CIA, have been tried and true. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about the quote-unquote civil society, this is also funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. That's where I was trying to get. Yeah, National Endowment for Democracy. Right. But I th- but I think it's uh, I think it's absurd to to try and, and pretend that this is not a snub. I mean, you cannot pretend that you recognize this guy and then you don't invite him. I think it was and actually this piece by the Associated Press tried to shift the blame to Mexico that it was Mexican officials who insisted that Guaido not be invited. I think this is a a bit of a lame excuse. I think the U.S. I mean, despite all the the faux pas in terms of uh, their decisions surrounding this summit, I think they realized that it would just become a bigger circus and a bigger embarrassment 
if this this guy who has absolutely no legitimacy and for some reason is still around three years after the self-proclamation, I mean, if he showed up to the summit, even the, the leaders who did make it and were critical interventions of, of the U.S. decision to exclude these three countries you were talking about, I think they would have been much angrier if this uh, random idiot with a self-proclaimed title was also at the summit. Ricardo Vaz, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks so much. I look forward to it. Folks, you have been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We're out. 